Welcome to the Poetic Resurrection Podcast, where we explore perceptions. How self-reflecting questions can give you a better understanding of self. I'm your host, Sonia Iris Lozada. Stay tuned. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Poetic Resurrection. And today I have my editor and school teacher, Ruben Rodriguez. Hi, Ruben. Welcome. Hi, it's so good to see you again. It's been a while. I know, really. <laughs> yeah. And that's people out there. That's my fault because I haven't finished my poems. It's OK. Poetry is tough, right? You really have to get in the right headspace. There's so many distractions, I'm sure, especially because it's not like your full time job is as yes. a poet, you have to do all these other things. Yes. So I respect the time that it takes. I understand. Thank you. Tell me how you got started. I know you're a school teacher, and that's your mm -hmm. full-time job, an English teacher. Now, how did you get started in editing? Well, you know, the, the honest answer would be it really began with how I grew up. Because I know that you know, but maybe the mm -hmm. audience would be surprised to hear it. My father is an author, and he eventually became the Poet Laureate of Los Angeles. And so what that meant is ever since I was a little kid, I had this idea that writing and taking language seriously and following the sound of words was something worth pursuing. It wasn't just an, a dead end road to follow, but rather a means of sometimes escaping the dead ends that you were born with. Because I had heard so much from my dad mm -hmm. about the way that he grew up and the ways that he had felt so limited in his prospects and his imagination and how language was this way out for him. And so ever since I was little, I just, I took it very seriously, this idea that language was a means of not just communicating for practical ends, but rather a means of discovering for yourself what you really think and who you really are and kind of defining yourself by the language that you use and the impression that you leave. And that became something so interesting to me as a young kid. And this is a huge luxury because not everyone gets to have a father who is successful at writing, right? I think the reality for most people is they want to write. They love the idea of writing. They love the idea of words and language. But of course, what they see around them is people becoming stuck in the grind of work and the writing doesn't get anywhere, you know? So I had maybe a, um, you could call it a naive impression of how easy it would be. I had this view yeah. that, oh, like my dad, he just suddenly becomes this writer. All these people are paying attention to him. It must be that easy, right? And there was books everywhere around me when I was growing up. So I had this ease of a constant library. And I've grown into that kind of, if you look behind me, you can see I've grown my own kind of library. Mm -hmm. It's just become like my comfort zone is being surrounded by books. And so to put it very simply, I knew that I wanted to do something with books, with writing, with language ever since I was a little kid, because I really believed that in seeing how much it was a gift to my father, how much it stabilized him. You know, he grew up, he did not grow up in a literary family. He grew up in a gang lifestyle. There was drugs involved in his early life. When I was a little, little kid, we were not particularly well off. We grew up in a basement. Well, I grew up in a basement because that's what they could afford. 
He was uh, working day in and day out on his book. He hadn't actually released it yet. He had no idea that it was going to be the success that it was. But I got to see when I was about six years old, suddenly his book did really well and it completely changed his life. And it gave me this feeling like there's something magic about literature and about what it could do. And the ways that it affected him was really inspiring to me. And I think that was my starting point. Yeah. And then I should maybe skip ahead, right? <laughs> so now that was this sort of kernel in my head. The other gift was that because my dad was, he released the book when I was six. So then he was going on tour to promote his book, Always Running, which is about his life. Mm-hmm. And he took me with him as a little kid. So I got to go oh, to all exciting. of these colleges. Oh, it was amazing. I got to go to all of these colleges back to back to back. And one of the ones that stood out to me for some reason, I think it was just the visual of how it looked, was UCLA, right? And we lived in Chicago at the time. We did not live in California. But I remember when I went to UCLA, there was something about, uh, it has these these old buildings. Mm -hmm. Yeah, they're slightly asymmetrical and like there's something a little odd about them, but they have this kind of classic appeal and it's big open space and it climbs up a hill, right? Yeah. So it just stuck with me. And I just had this weird idea, like I need to go to this school. And it's such a simple, you know, like the the kid view of things. It's like, I didn't care about the professors. I didn't care about like any of the um, the criteria of the standard that we usually apply for when it comes to colleges. Mm-hmm. What I cared for was the feeling that it gave me. And then I had this idea, I want to go to that school. So then the whole time in middle school and high school, I just kept thinking, okay, how do I get there? And thankfully, uh, I did well enough and I, it was actually, this is very foolish. I don't recommend this to anyone. It was the only <laughs> school I, it was the only school I applied for in terms of colleges. Uh-huh. I didn't apply to UC Berkeley or any of these other ones. I was very dead set on that one. And uh, my mom hated that I did that, but it worked out because I got in. And then while at UCLA, I joined the literary journal, which I believe is still going called West Wind. Mm-hmm. And that was my first experience of being able to dedicate my time to work with writers. So West Wind is an open literary journal where students at UCLA can submit uh, pieces that they finish. Some of them are stories. Some of them are little um, personal essays. And they also have lots of poetry. And the thing that excited me the most about being part of that literary journal was it actively pushed us to work directly with the writers in the process of making their work before it actually showed up in the journal. So we weren't just receiving a series of pieces and then Uh just sort of giving a thumbs up or a thumbs down. We were essentially receiving invites from writers to say, hey, I'm working on something. Can you help us? Can you you join me on this journey as I'm working on this? And that was so fun for me. That was like one of my favorite things being at UCLA was being a part of that literary journal. And that was sort of my early, early experience with editing. Yeah, I went there and I actually had, but I went for ethnomusicology. And Oh, I, that's a fantastic subject. Yeah. Oh, it was so much fun. Can't really do much with it unless you're going to be a college professor or if you work with a composer and you're working on films. But I didn't even know that existed because I was writing at that time too. I, I should have submitted myself while I was a student. Yeah, but UCLA, it's, it's just a special school. It really is. And it's very, it's diversified. It's just nice. I mean, the lunch things they used to give, like, you know, they used to have powwows for lunch and you could go see all these shows during lunch. So I'm assuming you went as an English major to UCLA. 
Yes, I was an English major. But what was funny is I went in as an English major, but I didn't think I would ever become a teacher. Even though I knew that you're only really going to get an English degree so that you could become a teacher. That's mm-hmm. at least what everyone told me. Yeah. I really was not thinking practically in terms of work. I think I'm still that way. I really don't generally care that much about how much money I make. I mm-hmm. really, really only want to be reading and writing and thinking in that way. That's all I care about. And I could live a very simple life so long as I'm able to do that. And so when I was getting my English degree, I knew that that was the pressure was to become a teacher. Mm-hmm. But I, it just wasn't my passion. And my only passion was just working with writers and thinking about like stories and thinking about poetry. Now, what ended up happening, of course, is there are realities to life. When I graduated from college, uh, being an editor is tough in terms of how much money you can make. You actually, oh, you know, you're on call, basically. Yes. And you're constantly pursuing engagement because the way that I work as an editor, I could work for a publishing house, for instance. Right. And mm-hmm. that would be much more steady work. But unfortunately, and, you know, this isn't I can't speak for all publishing houses, but uh, my understanding is a lot of them. It's very you're you're on deadline and it's very short and you're not really thinking through what you're editing. It's not a very, for me, engaging way to edit because it just feels like rapid fire and almost like it feels rapid fire. It almost feels like I'm rushing through just to get a product out. And that doesn't feel very good. So I, as an editor, work directly with writers but that isn't steady work per se. Mm-hmm. So my steady job has become as a teacher. But the thing is, you know, what you learn is sometimes the things that you're resisting all the time that people keep telling you, hey, you should become a teacher, which I was told all the time. Mm-hmm. It turns out it's really amazing to be a teacher. It's exactly like what I thought uh, being a writer and editor would be. It's very creative. Every day that I come in, yes, I have a lesson plan, some kind mm-hmm. of rough sketch of a lesson plan. But it's always different every single time. You're adapting to this budding mind that has so many ideas that you couldn't possibly fathom ahead of time. And they're constantly throwing you for a loop and you just got to ride on that rail and just see where it takes you. And it's it's exciting all the time. So now I work as an English teacher mm-hmm. and an editor, half, half editor, half English teacher. I take on editing jobs whenever I can. Um, my most consistent editing work is with the Achucha Press which is the press that my dad owns. But then I also just work with various writers one-on-one. Some of the writers are writers that I actually met at UCLA that I've just continued oh. working with again and again. Yeah. So it's it's been a lot of fun. And then the English is really the thing that takes up most of my time. Mm-hmm. But it's really good. time. It's like I get to work with young, young writers and I get to work with people who are so curious. And it's like that curiosity is the thing that drives my motivation to teach. It's so much fun. Me as a writer, and I met you, your, your mom was wonderful and referred you to me because <laughs> your mom has a lot to do with the Atucha Press as well, right? Yeah. Because mm-hmm. I asked her, do you know an editor? <laughs> she goes, my son. <laughs> yeah. You know, my mom's been involved every step of the way through my dad's career. She and... has. I mean, she's been like an incredible support. Mm-hmm. She's edited uh almost all of his books not there's one that i know that she didn't but she was there in the first pass for every one of the books that he's worked on she talks to him about what he's writing all of the time that's also one of the wonderful things growing up around writers is you get to hear conversation about books as a very normal kind of conversation yeah and uh man i i wish everyone could have 
that kind of experience growing up, to have that feel normal. That's a great experience. I'm like your dad. I did not grow up around anything like that. It was you needed to follow your passion. Mm -hmm. And my mom's side, I came from a musical family. So we had more music around to go into literature without support of any kind or someone to tell you. And at that time, couldn't really submit yourself to many contests because if you're a BIPOC, they don't understand what you're writing about. Mm. I find that with most of the contests today, so you specifically have to write, apply to one that can understand that kind of writing. So how do you find editing for like a BIPOC person? How do you treat that? Do you I mean, there's got to be a different way of approaching it. Mm. Most of the BIPOC writers I get to work with are often through the Achutra Press, which means they come uh, very often with a bilingual angle, right? They mix yeah. in multiple languages, usually yeah. Spanish with English. And it's that code switching, right? That sort of living in almost like two hats of yes. life. And they're kind of switching it on and off for different occasions. So sometimes the focus for me is just thinking, how do we have that tension there in the work, in the art, the mm -hmm. tension of, I have one set of expectations and these are the expectations born of the kind of luck of just being in a certain country at a certain time. Mm -hmm. But then I have this other kind of luck of having a whole history that's trailing behind me that carries its own kind of weight and own kind of expectations but perhaps people don't see that and they don't know that about me or perhaps they don't appreciate what that struggle brings. And then it's allowing that tension to not be purely a trauma. Sometimes some of the writers, I, I don't want to say names because it, it's more complicated. You know, I don't want to, I didn't ask mm -hmm. them if I could talk about this, but there's one writer I have in mind who I could sense in her writing that she was trying to touch on the pain of that conflict right, of living in those two worlds. Mm -hmm. But it was still a trauma that was very fresh for her, I think. And so I was reading her poetry and I felt like she hadn't yet actually walked over the threshold of seeing it for what it was as mm -hmm. something kind of traumatic, as something actually that uh, maybe she didn't realize it was causing a whole trail of effects in her life. Mm -hmm. And so I actually asked if we could talk about some of those pieces, but specifically I wanted to talk like, what is it that you really want to write about? You know, it sort of feels like you're, you're touching the edge of this tension and you're not fully delivering, you're not fully going into it. And is there a reason why, you know, what is it about this that feels really painful for you? And what I learned from her was it was mixed in with her relationship with her parents and the ways that the pressures that they had put on her to kind of adapt mm -hmm. to society became a pressure that was subtracting away her own passions and her own interests. And it made it persist in her life because now she's a mother. And then she was trying to think, how am I supposed to raise my kid? And that was the thing that she really wanted to write about. And she didn't really notice that that's the thing that she was avoiding, right? So I think maybe mm -hmm. one thing that becomes important with dealing with certain BIPOC writers is really asking the question, this pain that you're writing about, is it the actual pain that you're feeling or 
is it being used as as a surface to cover up something that you're really trying to avoid and can we get to that thing that you're trying to avoid because maybe there's some healing in there if we can get there if you want to voluntarily yeah because you can't force someone to get into it when they're not ready but it's mm -hmm. also accepting your vulnerability mm -hmm. i understand that and i can totally understand what she was probably going through on my first book i it was inspiring me raw raw emotion and i understand how she feels because i was ashamed of bringing stuff up that was in there i just finally said i need to get over myself i was going to use a pen name i was going to not use mm -hmm. my picture i was you know so i said that how is that helping me I really touched a nerve with many people in terms of they didn't feel alone. And I'm like, oh, okay, I'm on the right track then. Yeah. You know, but it is, it's that vulnerability. And it's not easy because mm -hmm. you're you're opening up to the world for criticism or however they are going to come towards you. And especially if our family is going to read this and they're going to get angry with her. I get it. Yeah. I, and what, what you just said, I think, is the key in terms of motivation. You said that you're not alone right and mm -hmm. so even though it's really scary mm -hmm. to open up about that emotion the truth is your situation is not exactly the same as everyone else but it mirrors in certain ways or at least it has a kind of it's in a pattern with a lot of what other people are going through you know because you're not the only one with that kind of mixed background and struggle yeah and that becomes a service right and again it has to be voluntary like when i talked to that particular poet i didn't want to push her on it it was more just I could feel that the I could feel that she was holding back some of the emotion in her writing. And it felt like, you know, I, I feel like I can tell that you're trying to talk about something, but you're not talking about it yet. You know, and thankfully, she was very receptive and she actually really wanted to talk about that sort of stuff, you know, and her book isn't out yet. So, again, I don't want to actually. Like, yeah, no, no. Her, but, and but, yeah. but that's great because you're telling a journey of a poet and what they went through and what it takes to be a poet. And mm -hmm. I think that's really important in terms of people think, oh, I'm just going to write poetry. And I wrote poetry and I would stick it in a drawer. I was ashamed to have anybody read it. It was for my <laughs> only for me. But I get it. I get the fear of vulnerability because you're telling the world you're basically your secret. Mm -hmm. Yeah, this is my secret. This is the this is what I've hid from everyone to pretend that I'm my life is okay. And now my I'm gonna show them my life is not okay. So yeah. it's it's a big deal. And you know it's also very risky because yeah. people can judge you, right? Yeah. And the more vulnerable you are, the more that judgment can feel like it's really about you, which can hurt a mm -hmm. lot. And when it's mixed in with your art, where you're trying to convey it a certain way or often with art we're trying to have a specific effect it can hurt even more because now it's almost like you plus a kind of child that you put into the world and now people are judging both you and the child and it just yeah. feels even worse yeah. now you know with you i've worked with you on a couple yeah. of your poetry books your compilation you seem far more ready to kind of dive into that raw side of pain and memory i remember mm -hmm. you have a lot of like snippets of memory in your poetry yeah how did you do that how did you take that dive was there a particular reason that you just committed you said that you were initially scared mm -hmm. but how did you get over something like that i was writing it it's like there's one poem that i wrote called the little girl and mm -hmm. that one is a very hard one for me to even read today in public 
And I wanted to, because that one I really wanted people to understand is from the viewpoint of the child, a molested child. Mm -hmm. And so it, it was hard. It was really hard for me to write that one. Uh, and I just kept going at it. And I read it to my friends and I did my crying and I got over it. And then I said, I need to let people know parents need to know what a child thinks at that age. You know, mm -hmm. they don't know. I was hoping that would be a service to parents by me releasing that. A lot of it, you're right. There's a story of my past, you know, where I grew up. I grew up in Chicago, too. I grew mm. up in Bucktown in the hood. It was the hood then. Now it's a nice neighborhood. <laughs> yeah, things keep changing. Yeah. When I was growing up, there was called urban removal. And they mm -hmm. did it. You, you have to be able to say, okay, when am I going to allow myself to, to let go? That is my best reviewed book to date. Mm. Yeah. yeah, good. Well deserved. And it almost, does it feel for you like it made it more worth it? The fact that it was received so positively, does it feel like, okay, that risk paid off? Yeah, it, now you're interviewing me, but yes. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it made me feel like, okay, I could write more. Because if I was going to be, and I was afraid, I mean, I, I self-publish, I do not have a publisher. And I was with Amazon, they go hit publish. And I'm like, and my finger was over the button. I'm like, hit publish. I'm like, oh, shit. Um, I'm going to be torn to shreds. Oh, the heck with it. I finally hit yeah. publish. And it came out and I got really good reviews on it. And it was the most reviewed book I've had. Mm -hmm. uh, so that it gave me the energy and all of that to continue. Yeah. And that is the beautiful thing, is that you can find your community. Right. Sometimes you can feel completely isolated in whatever complex series of emotions you have. And part of the joy of putting it out there beyond the kind of adrenaline of just putting something so tender out into mm. the otherwise rough world is just having that feeling of maybe I'm going to find a community who's seeking this out. And then it's like, think about how tight a connection that is when you find those types of people who read your work and actually understand you. That's beautiful. Yeah, I was actually very flattered because a lot of the experiences are me growing up in Chicago in the hood and being Spanish and all that. So I didn't know if it was going to cross over to other cultures, but by mm -hmm. the reviews, it did. And that's what I wanted. I wanted to cross over and, you know, it's poetry, it's art. It makes you think, it makes you feel. And I knew going in that poetry is subjective. You're either going to love it or hate it. Mm -hmm. it I, I find this easier knowing that when you go in. One thing that I keep in mind with some of these, you asked, how do I especially deal with BIPOC writers? Mm -hmm. Sometimes I read works that are of a completely different lifestyle than mine. There was one work that I edited two years ago that was only about being a mother. That was all of the poems were about being a mother. Now that is so far afield from my life experience. Uh -huh. But what I focused on and talked to her about as an editor was to make sure that we're treating uh, some of the writing as a kind of world building, right? We are offering enough detail so that the reader gets the context surrounding 
what is going to end up being very common amongst all of us, mm -hmm. which is our humanity. The parts of us that feel anger, the parts of us that feel despair, that uh, feel a complete loss of hope because the expectation doesn't match the reality, that is something very familiar. And then the thing that's going to be new is the context around it. And so long as we build that context properly, I call it world building. It's mm -hmm. the same thing that a fantasy writer has yeah. to do, right? They're talking about something that completely doesn't exist, and yet they can make us feel it as if it exists. That's what we do as writers. We are inviting people into our world. And yes, we might be across from them literally in the neighborhood, yeah. but we are our own kind of world, and we have to think of our lives as a kind of world building, and that's the details that really make a difference. And that was really fun for me because I got to I got to really feel like this writer was pulling me into a world that I'll never directly experience. And it was fascinating because it was something that could be done in the sense of me getting close. Obviously, I'm not yeah. going to feel it exactly, but it felt close. And that was really relieving and good. So when you get into a story like that, then then when you edit, it's more on the emotion. Yeah, it's making sure that there is clarity within that world building. Okay. Yeah. Is there anything that you would like to address to the audience? The only thing worth mentioning, because I actually avoid social media quite <laughs> a bit. I, I don't have a Facebook. I don't have Instagram. Uh -huh. And that's because I really just want to live in books. Uh -huh. I used to have a Twitter, but ever since Elon Musk took it over, it's it's just been a complete waste of time to go back there. So I don't want to be there. Um, but I did just start a YouTube channel mm -hmm. um, like two weeks ago. And oh, cool. all I expect of it is my plan is just to talk about the books that I'm reading, to maybe talk about books generally, release these little 10-minute videos once a week. And that's it. Just a very simple, small little channel. It's called To Readers, It May Concern. It's just like To Whom It May Concern, but yeah. To Readers, It May Concern. I expect to have that channel, just a little tiny channel. Don't expect high production values. There's almost no editing. It's yeah. literally just me in front of the camera talking about some book that I just read or something like that. I would love it if people check that out. No, I'll definitely. And I'll put the link in the uh, notes. Thank you. Thank you so much for being on the show. I greatly appreciate I learned a lot. <laughs> <laughs> and I hope the audience learns a lot, too. Anything? Any last words? Well, it was wonderful talking to you. And uh, we should talk more often. I can't wait to see the next draft of your book so we can work together on that. Yes. But yes, it was, it was fantastic being here. Thank you so much for inviting me. Oh, I've been wanting to ask you for a long time. Thank you and many blessings. You too. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to the Poetic Resurrection Podcast. Available on Apple iTunes, Spotify, Amazon Music, Google Music, and many other podcast platforms. Please visit us and subscribe to our newsletter at PoeticResurrection.com for the latest information and updates.